final instalment. And no doubt will be maybe the most important instalment. It's the way, it's the opportunity now where we get to sum up the great takeaway, having been through um, so much, seen so much things repeated, how do we now put this into a bundle and take this and make it into something meaningful in our lives so that we, so that in a sense our time in Hosea has, has led to something, has been monumental in some aspects, has any embracing of God's word, any contact with God's word will have to change us one way or another. And I hope that it is for you, changing you, giving you new ways of thinking about who God is. And again, what does it mean to be relentlessly loving? Maybe it's reforming the way that you understand love. Maybe in your own context, Maybe you're seeing yourself challenged like Hosea to love in an unconditional way. Before I jump into this last verse, or last chapter, um, 14, I would like to pray and, again, go through verse by verse with you um, as a way of being able to slowly walk ourselves through the arguments that and the propositions that Hosea gives us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that your, your love is relentless and not reckless. I guess on the surface it may look reckless, but Lord Father, um, you love us with an intention that, Lord Father, that we may not even really kind of perceive, Lord, even in this lifetime and and maybe even only slightly better in the life to come but yet father it is far from reckless give us a a good vision of what we need to do to respond to this message lord god for us who have been saved for um for for a while lord there is there is always that challenge there, Lord Father, to continue draw, to continually draw ourselves closer to you. For those who have maybe only been saved and, and, you know, for, for not so long, and maybe the zeal is starting to wear off, Lord, again, there is something for them to do. And for those who have never known you, Lord God, never heard this message, heard of this love from this God they've never seen, So, Father, help us as we take our time to go through your word and help us to respond, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can I begin with a quote from um, C.S. Lewis? And, um, again, I, think I find it helpful and hopefully will help us to maybe pick up the vision of what is being asked of us. And he says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, 
when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It came to mind as I was kind of putting it together about how so often we are trying to fight with these passions and God obviously trying to draw our attention and says, you know, receive this love that the Lord is offering. And, and it seems that the things that distract us are just as much as powerful. But Lewis here makes it quite clear that it's easier things to love not stronger loves that really govern us. Easier things to do. We need to understand that Hosea is speaking through the cultural zeitgeist. The, 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 the embodiment of, their, of his own age, of what people didn't see, you know, what people would have been difficult for them to see because of what the culture around them would have said. That's what that zeitgeist means. And, and even for us today, what that zeitgeist would say to us. So when a society believes that it is entitled but not accountable, it needs a dramatic message in order to awaken it from its stupor. Goma is an unflattering representation of us. It is true that most people see individual freedom as so sacred. It does not matter how much kindness is bestowed upon it, there can never be, it can never be enough in order to make it indebted. And we looked at this last week, didn't we? This whole idea that, again, our society sees that, well, you know, fine, you can, you can love me and, 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 and give me all this attention, but I don't owe you anything. It's up to me. If my heart doesn't want to go with that, then I'm fine. We find that within the ethics of the Bible that that isn't so. We are being invited to love the most lovable. And it is a sin to reject it. The parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 is a great reminder as well for us about this, this situation, that the grace that, God has, has, the grace that God has given us, the debt that he has forgiven us, the love that he has shown to us has to be met with gratitude. Or we will find that we have not in fact received that grace. And so this is that tapping into the message today about what it means to be truly repentant, truly to have gratitude for what God has done. And not just to sweep it under the carpet and say, well, fine, you know, if you're going to do that, that's great. It's your money, it's your cash, it's your time. But I owe you nothing. Israel's failure to meet God with gratitude was putting them in danger of judgment. 
If you think that you've not received any such kindness from God, then you need to think again. We have all received that grace from God. A scripture came to mind as I was thinking about setting us up for going through what we are doing um, today in, in Hosea 14, and it was in 2 Timothy 3, 1. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. I want to read that for you and kind of just highlight certain things it says about love. So Paul writes this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, first highlight, lovers of money, second highlight. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, third highlight, unholy, without love, fourth highlight, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, fifth highlight, treacherous, Rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. As that scripture came to mind in my, in my you know, studies for, for, for today, it, I didn't realize how much it talks about love in that, those five verses. But at the heart of it, as much as it talks about love, right in the heart there, it says they are actually without love. All these loves that we are took that, you know, people are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, uh, not lovers of good, lovers of pleasure, rather than God. All these are self-loves. Loves that are focused in on the self. And as such, they don't register as love at all. In other words, love has to find itself and its true meaning in an object other than itself in order for it to become fully love. In other words, it has to receive, give that which it has received to somebody else, something other than itself, him or herself, in order for it to genuinely be love. But ultimately, true love is God-centric. In other words, God is the most lovable being that we can love. And that's why even within the marriage, it's God's involvement in that marriage that makes the marriage strong. The love of you towards God that helps you to keep your commitments to each other because of the high place of God in your, in your, in your relationship. A book such as Hosea can be a great at restating that our lost love for God means that we have lost our love and respect for ourselves. When we look at Goma, she looks pitiful. 
she wanders off, she goes and has children of another man, and we think, wow, you really have lost your self-respect. And it's how we look when we don't allow God's love to be central to us, to who we are, and respond to it correctly. So let me start with the first two verses, verses 1 and 2, reading from the ESV. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips." Put clearly, this verse asks for us to ask God for forgiveness. The Hebrew word that populates this passage means turn. It describes a physical action. That's why when we, you know, talk about forgiveness or repentance, within Hebrew, it, it connotates a physical action as opposed to just something that we say. It means to move away from, to turn away from something that is bad and turn to something that is good. In other words, it's saying you need to turn your life around, not, merit, you know, not just metaphorically, but literally physically. There can be no repentance if there is no turning literally, in your life. It cannot be merely a sorry or an apology. It means to favor one course of action over another course of action and to respond to it. Also note within this, you know, where it says, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. It also wants you to understand that the wording of the passage also means that our words become costly. So it, it's not the fact that there aren't words in our response to God, in our turning away, but it also means that when we confess those things and we say those things, that they're sacrificial words. They have weight to them. They are costly. They're like the slaughtering of cows on behalf of our sins. Moving to verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will not say, no more our God to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan, finds mercy. So what does this say? It says, identify the people or things that you have looked to as your means of salvation and renounce them. Consider how these people or things have let you down and may have left you wounded and vulnerable, as it says here, orphaned. you remember, Gomer's children, especially the last two, were, were, were named No Mercy 
and not my people. These will obviously find that as they return to God and return back into that loving relationship that Hosea was offering, that they will no longer be orphans anymore. Where Gomer's lover has, has obviously disappeared and slow, sold her into slavery, that he will find that those children will find a father. That's the beauty of the text, is that God will not leave you orphaned. Those things that you've trusted in that have let you down, or maybe have not let you down yet, that you will find a father in him. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. As the scripture says, mercy will triumph over judgment. So it is that God is swift to forgive. But are we to view, how are we to view this scripture in the fact that the Assyrians did actually overrun the northern territories of Israel and they did take them into captivity? It certainly seems that God is unable to forgive his people who do not repent. The reality was is that could the Assyrian invasion be, be prevented? Well, possibly at this point in history, no. But was God's hand short to forgive? No. Surely there was an opportunity, and again, this is probably um, noted as well, that those who heeded the warning, and remember that at the point of this time that Israel was going through a resurgence. They believed that they were able to repel Assyria, that somehow that their allegiances will work, and even their tributes to Assyria that would work. But maybe there were those who heard the message and said, let me go to where I will find safety. And, and many probably did migrate to Judah. So what is concealed in this is the fact that there were those who did find at least within this lifetime, some degree of forgiveness and reconciliation with the Lord. But it would not be in the land of Israel as they knew it, but it would have to be somewhere else. Hence, the reason of turning. You need to do something in order to move out and receive that forgiveness as opposed to, oh, I've, I've confessed it, Lord, but I'm going to stay in this culture that is basically dragging us all down and not do anything about it. But you receive my apology. No. I believe that those who truly were seeking God's forgiveness moved out of the way. Repentance, therefore, is an essential Step to being a believer and finding our security in God. Let's move on to verses 5 to 7. I will be like the dew in Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow, and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like 
the wine of Lebanon. It's an interesting path, um, kind of understanding, you know, in this particular this particular passage, and it kind of links to Jezebel. It makes reference to Lebanon, and Lebanon was the area that Jezebel came from, who became the wife of Ahab, and she was, a, she was from Sidon. So modern-day Lebanon was known in those days, and modern-day Lebanon today is known as Tyre and Sidon in the ancient world. And it was the place of a beautiful forest of huge trees that grew, and obviously in the time of David, we saw that um, the trees... Um, were brought from Tyre and sent down by the river to David in order to build a temple, in other words. So there was a huge reliance on Israel upon this region. And obviously this region was known as beautiful. And it would believe that, and again, you, you, you have to understand the pagan world, it, would, it believed that in those days, an Israelite would have believed that Yahweh is in, is, is in control of, of, of Israel. The boundaries there, but up in Tyre and Sidon, Baal is the God there. He's the one that has blessed them. That's what they would have believed. And so, in other words, God was God over territory. There were different gods over different territories. And even ancient Israelites would have thought similar to that. And so it was possible that as Jezebel came and brought Baal worship there, that the Israelites would have felt, if we want a kind of pleasant land, a lush land like Lebanon, we need to invite that God here so that that God can bless us with that type of land. God here is saying that I will bless you with those things that you were looking for. I will bless you with the security that you thought you wanted. So I, I need to maybe, again, go over this in, in maybe a bit more de detail. The wrong assumption here is to think that God is offering them a land just like Lebanon in this passage. What God is looking at, the fact that they probably wanted a land like this. They wanted that kind of, you know, fertile land. Again, we're, looking, we're talking about a time where everybody lived off the land. Not like now, where we buy everything in packets. Where if the land didn't deliver, your nation went without. You starved. God is not saying, I'll give you a land exactly like Lebanon, but he's, he would give them the needs that they really, they really want. It's not so much the land they want, it's the security. And God will offer them the security that he can give to them, not what they see in another nation. Hence the military of Assyria, all these things were impressive to them, and they felt that this is the way that we get those things. If we worship the gods of these lands, we will get those things. A strong military and a pleasant land. 
God wanted to offer them his own security on his own terms. Today we may also look at the good things people have and develop an idea of where those things have come from and assume they come from sources other than the grace of God. Seeking these apparent sources is what will plunge us into seeking false gods. Or even just seeking superficial answers as opposed to deep and meaningful ones. Such as, such as seeking power and security through wealth and not through a relationship with God. Just another way of saying that we can look at the things that people have and they don't see the grace of God in their lives and they just say, well, and we think, well, where did you get that from? Well, you know, I do the stocks and da 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 and I've, you know, and, you know, if you put, you know, the, your time into that and, you know, you could really make something of your life and just do that. And, again, like I read that passage from Ecclesiastes 9, they don't realize that time and chance happen to them all, that there is a, a source which they think is just, well, you know, I, got it, I was in the right place at the right time, but it's the grace of God. So as we eye up what other people have and what we believe we want, are we going to the sources they claim have given it to them? Or are we seeking the source in which we really believe it's come from? That the grace of the Lord falls on the just and the unjust. Verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an ever-green cypress. From me comes your fruit. So for me, this verse now makes the connection between the good things we get coming from God and not from some other source. The truth made stark here is that none of the things that Israel admired from the other nations came from those gods that, worship, that they worshipped. In other words, there was no such thing as the lands being divided up amongst different gods. All those blessings, I mean, this is something that's even made even more apparent in Acts 17 when Paul says that God has given the times and the boundaries of all the nations throughout the ages. In other words, God has allowed people to rise up and become powerful. And again, we saw this in the book of Daniel as well, didn't we? that God was in the seat of these things, regardless of who they gave the credit to. Even today, we can look and admire the, the mind of the most ardent atheist. Here I think of someone like Nietzsche. If you've ever read Nietzsche, he is incredibly funny, incredibly thorough, and it said, I, I do admire his intelligence in the way that even how he, he pokes at the way the world is. A beautiful mind, you might even say. 
yet given over, obviously, to such a theme as atheism or even nihilism. But yet even that mind has come from God and not where he says it's come from, from himself. It is the grace of God that allows him to chastise God. For this reason, it would be wrong to assume that any person is the best judge of where their gifts and talents come from. We need to trust the fact that when God says, what have I to do with idols? What have I to do to it with all these other sources that people will claim as the source of their blessings? They all come from me. Again, James 1, isn't it? Every good and perfect gift comes from God, from the Father of lights. Verse 9, coming to the end. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. The, the, way of the, the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them. But transgressors, transgressors stumble in them. So this final statement seems to be an addition. And we need to be clear about that. Something that has been added from an editor that obviously compiled this work from before. And if anyone, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but again, there is this connection that the last 12 books of the Old Testament are known as the Book of the Twelve. In other words, they, they all work together as collectively speaking one message. Even as we obviously believe the Bible does so, but they're, they're, there's a unique way in which they believe that um, Hosea now connects to Joel, and then Joel connects to Amos, and such and such, so, that, so as to give a comprehensive message in the final days of Israel and Judah. And so often it's that what we've been finding, you know, even in the book of Hosea, is that twisting between repentance and judgment, grace and forgiveness. And, 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 and those themes kind of been woven in, in between it. And it's almost like, you know, well, what is it going to be? Is it going to be judgment or is it going to be forgiveness? And it's intricate because to some extent, it's, as this is saying, it's, it's giving it over to you. Is God going to finally judge me and, 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 you know, I'm just powerless in the middle of all of this and, I, I, you know, what do I do? It's like it says, well, look, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. He says, are you wise? Respond. Receive forgiveness because then you'll turn and you'll move out of the way of God's judgment. We move into the ark. We stand on the side of the, uh, the line where he says, those who are for, for Korah, let's stand on the side. Those who are for Moses, stand on. We would know where to stand. Constantly we find within the, the Bible that there is a theme where God is asking us to stand somewhere. Where do you stand? 
Who is wise will be able to discern. We are in times right now where we are being asked to stand. Or risk being cancelled. We, in our own time, need to cut through the cultural zeitgeist and be able to figure out where is the appropriate place to stand where we won't get hit by the judgment of God. And I believe those verses. God knows how to redeem his people from the day of wrath. But who is wise enough to hear? So this final statement presents everything that we've heard within the context of a proverb. Who is wise, let him respond. And again, like a proverb, the simple don't understand and move on into judgment. It's very much like the parables as well, isn't it? To who can hear, hear the message of this Again, we look down and we think, it's, well, it's quite simple, isn't it? But yet, at the time, people are kind of scratching their heads. I, I really don't know what you're saying, Jesus. And people will look at something like Hosea and say, well, I've gone through the book of Hosea, but I really don't understand what God is calling me for. What is he asking me to do? Well, we're going to go through that in a minute. Hopefully the message is clear and it's causing you to change the way you think and act. But in case you are not, let me walk through some of the steps we've already outlined that have been positioned, especially in those first three verses. by way of application, I want this to be something that we do at least at some part now. I want us to take some time as we wind down because, again, time allows for us to do that, right? Turn back to God means doing something to stop doing something and to do something else. That means that there may be things that you're already coming to mind that have really actually been distractions in your life, whether they be persons or things. This may mean that there is someone you need to lock off. Maybe you need to lock off for social media. Maybe you've realized you now need to get control of a habit that is now out of control. But we need to, in place of those things, put other things in place. That might mean you now commit to a daily reading plan through the Bible. Maybe with a suitable commentary that you can understand. So you can understand the Word of God. Maybe you need to get more involved in local ministry whatever that might look like. 
Maybe you're going to need to commit to a more structured prayer time. Remember, those things that we pray are going to be like sacrifices. Things that are words that are meaningful, are weighty, that cost us. Remember when you, when you gave that vow and you didn't fulfill that vow, you then, especially in ancient Israel, would have to go and take the most costliest thing that you could afford, whether that be a sparrow, whether that could be a lamb, whether that be a bull, and bring that and say, Lord, forgive me, I didn't pay my vow. In other words, it would cost you if you didn't do it. May it be like that for you costly. Not in the sense where you feel like, oh, well, maybe I'll just have to give a bigger offering next week. No. Where you feel the weight of not having done that which you've committed to. And therefore, pray for God to help you, to strengthen you, to do it. He also said about identifying the false gods, the false idols. Identify the person and the things that act as proxies for God in your life. Take some time to identify those things that you have actually said, I'm actually looking for this to be my security. I'm looking for these things in order to kind of build me up. As much as I'm going to church and I'm, I'm kind of trapped in the, in, in the surroundings, and again, this is nothing against the, the, the normal things we do. Don't, don't, you have to hear this. But you know within your heart where these things have risen to the level of, I really am trusting this. Without this in my life, my life falls apart. Can you identify something like that in your life? Can you, when you think of that song, you know, my life is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. Can you say that and sing that and mean that? That should all fall away from your life, that as long as that is true, then you still are on the rock. And if not, we need to get ourselves on the rock, on that which will not fade away. As you think about these things, think about how you will root out or redirect your attention on these persons or things that have become your focal point. How will you now redirect that as in the first part into stuff, into things where I say, God, you now become the center of that hope and that need. You become that which I focus on for that. And lastly, lest we forget that in you the orphan finds mercy. Do not believe that God will leave you stranded. 
That's the promise of Hosea. He says to you, God will not leave you orphaned. In other words, as you are move away from those things which you have built your security on and come to God and you are vulnerable, he says that your, vulnerable, your vulnerableness will be secure. You know, I couldn't help thinking of, when you, especially when you think of orphans, thinking of the story of Oliver Twist. The brutality. I mean, even of recent media, isn't it? Of people left in homes, children left in homes into horrible conditions. Listening to the news this week of a mom who was forced to give up their child and went to a, an adopted, and those adopted parents killed them, killed her child. Don't think of it like that. You will not be left abandoned. God picks up the orphan. That's what this relentless love is about. It's about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And knowing that experientially, not just as some kind of, well, yeah, yeah, he's good, but... You can demonstrate and say, I've seen the faithfulness of the Lord. You may have a testimony like David, isn't it? I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. May that also be true for us. So now let us take some time. Let us pause. Let's make this a lifetime of application. Maybe as we've come to the end of this series, but yet not the end of what God is doing for us, in us through this series, let us now take some time and start thinking about that and maybe praying just for yourself. Whether you want to pray, maybe you want to think this through, says, Lord, what is in my life right now that I need to root out? What if I, like Goma, have found a distraction that has helped me to wander away from the place of security into a place of unsecurity. What is that in your life today? Think about what it is and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to turn from that which I've trusted in and turn to you.
and as we used to sing, Lord. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Incline your ear to us and grant us thy peace. Amen. Lord, hear our prayers. Father, we are people that, again, if it were not so, your prophets would not have, sold, have, not have said so, Lord. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. And it's not like as if we just need, dear Lord Father, the, the once reminded of God. We have constantly wandered, dear Father. And so, Father, help us to continually to be in the presence of your gospel, calling us, dear Lord God, to the place of repentance, calling us to the place, dear Lord God, where we are changing the positions, dear Lord God, where we are no longer aligned with you. No longer in the channel of your blessings, Lord Father, and bring us to that place, dear Father, where we can stay in your peace. Stay within the context of your love. Lord, there are those of us, dear Lord, who have felt orphaned even now, dear Lord God, have felt the weight of that which they've trusted in has removed from their life, whether it be a person, whether it be something that they've trusted in their Lord God, it has gone and they feel shattered. And as such, dear Lord Father, you are calling that person to, the, to come back and receive your love. The love that never left them, but the love that could not reach them where they had secured themselves away from it in order to go to something else, dear Lord Father. Help us to understand the importance of repentance and turning, dear Lord God, that in that sense, we need to give those things up to put ourselves in that channel of blessings today, dear Lord God. Help us, dear Lord God. Wherever we might be, dear Lord Father, where we need to respond to the message of this book, to come back to love, to true love. So Lord, help us as we move to you, dear Lord God, because you've already moved to us. Lord, may the wounded hearts be healed, dear Lord, as they turn back to you. They leave this place transformed with an encounter in you, dear Lord. You will not abandon us. Help us not to abandon you. In Jesus' name. Join us next time. For more of God's truth to transform your reality.